Good morning. Those of you who braved the cold, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Jared Lawson. I will pray for us and then we will jump into Friends of the Faith in the Modern Era. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you for the benefits of church history that we can, 2,000 years down the road of the resurrection and the ascension, we can look back at men and women who went before us who, uh, like us, are desiring to be faithful, who long to see uh, a world that does not know you come to know you and long to see you glorified. And so I pray as we look at uh, these four men today that we would be stirred towards that end, uh, that it might perhaps remove some of the blind spots in our own day, uh, and we might see the, just the, the gift of um, conversing with someone like Charles Spurgeon uh, and knowing you better because he knew you and he can teach us many things about you. Same with Lewis and Billy Graham and Herman Bovink. So be with us this morning. Uh, we love you. We pray in your son's holy name. Amen. Okay, so we are nearing the end of our year-long uh, church history theological equipping venture. Uh, so I thought it would be a good time to refresh why do this. Why study church history? Why in particular uh, do things like we're doing today, study the men uh, and women of church history, key figures? We've stopped along the way and, and highlighted men like Athanasius or Augustine and things like that. And so why do this? And I actually have a, a, a quote from one of the men we're going to look at today, C.S. Lewis, on the benefits of reading old books or uh, conversing, hanging out with old dead guys, if you will. So let's read this. Uh, from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this in the preface to On the Incarnation by uh, Athanasius. Every age has its own outlook. It's specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable at making certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need books that will correct characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means the old books. All contemporary writers share, to some extent, the contemporary outlook. We may be sure that the characteristic blindness of the 20th century, or in our day, the 21st century, the blindness about which posterity, about which future generations will ask, how could they have thought that, lies where we have never suspected it, and concerns something about which there is untroubled agreement between Hitler and President Roosevelt. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books, if we read only the books from our day. Where they are true, we will give, uh, they will give us truths which we half already knew. Where they are false, they will aggravate the errors with which we, already dangerously, or with which we were already dangerously ill. The only palliative, the only medicine is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And this can be done only by reading old books. You and I share the same blind spots with everybody else in our day. Hitler and President Roosevelt shared the same blind spots that they weren't aware of. The only way, according to Lewis, to open our eyes to this blind spot isn't by reading people who share those same blind spots, but rather keeping the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. So... Today we're going to attempt to do that. We're going to look at four men. This is totally subjective. I picked four heroes. You know, when you teach on heroes of the faith, you can pick four other dudes. Uh, but uh, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Herman Bovink, Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, 
and Billy Graham, a pastor, a theologian, a professor, a writer, an apologist, and C.S. Lewis, and an evangelist. And these will be kind of uh, characteristically, as we've done, short biographies. There's many more people we could look at, but this is kind of meant to be a, an introduction. Uh, I want this to make you go read Spurgeon and go read C.S. Lewis and go read Bovink and go listen to Billy Graham, his books, uh, you can read them, but his sermons, uh, to, to give a bit of a taste of this, this clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds to awaken what we maybe haven't seen before. Uh, we will not agree with them on everything, to clarify I'll give, uh, that is true of everyone we will ever read, ever. Augustine, Athanasius, uh, Aquinas, John Calvin, Martin Luther, we will not agree with them on everything. Uh, that is a skill, a skill we need to get better at as evangelicals today is reading humbly and charitably and interacting with, heaven forbid, people that we don't agree with. Let's read uh, Charles Spurgeon's thoughts on this. Far be it from me to imagine that Zion contained none but Calvinistic Christians within her walls, or that there are none saved who do not hold our views. I rejoice to confess, or, uh, to confess that I feel sure that there are some of God's people even in the Romish church. If you only surround yourself and only you know, go into the tribal camps of those who 100% agree with you, you will find yourself lonely and prideful. So we will not agree. Maybe Spurgeon, we might actually agree on everything. I'm not quite sure. But Lewis, these other guys, we won't. But that's a skill that we need to get better at. So let's start by looking at Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, Tim's oldest boy, uh, Haddon Hollis, is named after this great man. Uh, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. He had preached over 600 times before the age of 20. Okay, so he got some experience early on. The collection of his sermons, so he preached and he'd also write sermons that he would distribute. The collection of all of his sermons technically is the largest set of books ever written by a single author in the history of the Christian church. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, it was said that he could read before he could talk. Uh, his grandfather was a preacher and he would go into his study at the age of three and pull the Puritans off of his shelves and sit and read the Puritans. So a genius from early on, but he... Uh, talks about how he was not a Christian, though he knew the things of God, he couldn't take hold of it. He said he still felt the shackles of sin, he describes it as just agony and despair over the state of his own soul. Uh, it is not knowledge that makes one a Christian. James says the demons have knowledge. The demons have perfect Trinitarian theology, they have perfect uh, theology of Jesus, they just don't worship him, he's not their Lord. So it's not knowledge. Spurgeon has the knowledge, but his heart is not given over to the Lord yet until at the age of 15, one of the most famous uh, conversion accounts in the history of the Christian church, at least that's uh, in our sort of traditions, ones that were counted a lot along with Augustine, is at the age of 15 on a snowy morning. I have a quote here from Spurgeon actually uh, describing it. Spurgeon, there is a snowy morning, much like today very cold uh, in London, and he was going to his church, but he couldn't get there because there was so much snow. Uh, one time, this is totally random, uh, one time, uh, Claudia and I, when we were engaged, she went, we were in Australia, she went back to Norway, I went to here, and it snowed in both places, and so I was emailing her, uh, texting, I guess we're not from 
before texting exists. I was texting her and sent her a picture. I was like, look, snow day, we can't drive anywhere. And there was about that much snow on the ground. And she sent back same and a picture of like a roof of the car and then snow. So differences there, but it's sort of a Norway-ish snowy morning there. He couldn't get to his church. And so he turns uh, into a primitive Methodist church, not his denomination, but just wants to go to church. And so here's him describing his conversion again, agonizing over his own soul for years and years and years until this day comes. Sometimes I think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to the place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen people. Minister, uh, the minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. He began like this, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn how to look You may be the biggest fool in the world, yet you can look. A man not be worth $1,000 a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. This is not only what the text says. It says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on a cross. Look I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend, and I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. Then, Spurgeon speaking here, then he looked at me under the gallery and said, Young man, you look very miserable. And you will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do do not obey my text. But if you obey it now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. This is Spurgeon speaking again. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So at 15, the darkness finally lifts. He sees the sun and comes to know Jesus as his Savior and instantly is desperate to serve the Lord. He wouldn't go to college, uh, but he would be one of the most well-read people in all of England, if not the most. Uh, He would go around uh, teaching in different Bible studies, and at age 17, 17, he uh, teaches in a Bible study at Water Street Baptist Church, a kind of little podunk town outside of London, and the congregation is amazed, asks him to be their pastor, and there's great revival. This town is known for kind of just, just incredible sin, and there's just revival that breaks out as a result of his preaching. The, the, they would gather outside the small chapel and look through the windows to hear him preaching, and the membership went from 40 to 400 almost instantly. He pastored there for two years, so from 17 to 19, he's leading this church, and then New Park Street Baptist Church in London, a very famous church in London that had had uh, several very famous pastors. Uh, we're looking for a pastor and, and looking for people to kind of fill the pulpit, and so they asked this young guy, this young Spurgeon, to come fill in one Sunday, and uh, he says yes. And so he goes and preaches, and people are kind of mocking this teenager that's preaching, them, uh, preaching to them. And then after he preaches, they're spellbound by his sermon and instantly ask him the next week to be their 
pastor. And so the New Park Street Baptist Church, which later was renamed the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, is where Spurgeon ministered for, from 19 to the end of his life at age 57. And similar to Water Street Baptist Church, there was incredible growth instantly. They had a membership of about 200, and then within a week, they were turning away hundreds of people. Within a month, turning away thousands of people. Membership rose to 6,000 very rapidly. Spurgeon knew almost all of them by name. Uh, What would characterize Spurgeon is not, he did the preaching and nothing else. He was a pastor. He cared for his people. He knew almost all of them by name. His preaching ability was simply unlike anything anybody had ever seen. Uh, Again, he would write sermons and publish them. They would sell for about uh, 20,000 copies of his written sermons would sell a week, uh, which would make him very wealthy. He quickly became the most famous pastor in the world. His church became the largest church in the world, and he would use all of those funds to fund other ministries that we'll look at here in a second. He would have been considered a millionaire, but by the end of his life, he left his uh, wife 2,000 pounds because almost all of their money uh, went to funding either building projects or 66 other ministries that he started, all funded by uh, him. And it was said that not a week went by where there wasn't a conversion either by his preached sermon or his written sermon. So what was it about him? What was it that made him the prince of preachers other than obviously the spirit, right, powerfully moving? It's not man who changes heart, it's the spirit. Uh, but what was it about Spurgeon? Was he just very articulate? Is that it? Uh, so I have, I have three things here. Again, there are tons more. When you preach on Spurgeon, you can, you can put other ones. Uh, three things that I think were kind of stamps of, of the person of Charles Haddon Spurgeon that affected his ministry and led to uh, uh, this, this idea of him being the prince of preachers and led to this in- incredible revival all through London. The first uh, is that he saw Christian growth as a direct result of knowing God and exploring the infinity of his God. Knowing, loving and communing with his God. There is absolutely no separation in Spurgeon between the head and the heart. There isn't what you believe over here and then your spiritual prayer life over here. For him, those two things are completely united. Here's a a lengthy quote, but it it gives us an insight into Spurgeon's motivations here. He says this uh, before a sermon, uh, by the way, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle to, to prep his people for what his mission is. He says this, the most excellent study for expanding the soul, spiritual life, not, not head knowledge. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect and nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, the subject is immensely comforting. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a soothing for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you like, or would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares, then go plunge yourself in the God's head's deepest sea and be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow 
and grief, and so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead, Charles Spurgeon, at the age of 20 says that to his congregation. You want the stress and anxiety that you feel every single day to finally be relieved? Don't read self-help books. Go plunge yourself into the infinite sea of the God of all comforts. Go know the God who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's Charles Spurgeon. This is not a seeker-sensitive Preacher. This is not a, our people won't get high theology, so let's dumb it down so they keep coming back to Jesus. Let's help out God by dumbing him down because apparently he's not good enough. Right? I've got to translate our complex, boring God into something that people will like. That is not Charles Spurgeon, the total opposite. Another quote, he lives in the day similar to ours. So in, us, in our day, love and truth get pitted against each other. Right? You can believe things and be cold or love people and you know, you just, you're a lifetime, lifelong learner, something like that. Uh, in his day, similarly, it was, it was you know, doctrine and Christian life were pitted against each other. Your spiritual life and what you believe are always fighting against each other. This is what he has to say to that. Those who would do away with Christian doctrine are, whether they, aware of, whether they are aware of it or not, the worst enemies of Christian living. Why? Because the coals of orthodoxy are necessary to the flames of piety. You want a God to comfort you, don't cheapen him. Actually study who he is. Realize that he is an, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He keeps his promises. He's not wishy-washy like us. Emotions don't sway him from day to day. He is immovable. He keeps his promises, and he's infinitely good and infinitely perfect. If you do away with that, whether you know it or not, you're going to do away with what you actually value, Christian living. There's no separation. You want to, to thrive in your spiritual life, explore your infinite God. That's the first thing that I think. Just all of his sermons, that comes through. This incredible God that affects everything about us. The second thing, trusting this infinitely good God in the midst of absolute horrible opposition that was relentless and came from about every category that can be conceived. He was constantly persecuted. He was constantly hated. He was constantly slandered and constantly oppressed from every side his entire ministry. I'll just tell, uh, I'll tell a quick story of when he was at 22. Okay, so he's been at the uh, New Park Street Baptist Church in London for three years. It's growing like crazy. They want to expand the building, and so they're, they're going to take a couple weeks as they're expanding the building uh, to meet in the Surrey Garden Music Hall, which had a capacity of about 10,000. And people thought, he's never going to you know, fill this. People won't come. And they did. And every seat was filled. And the rows were filled. The aisles were filled. The stairway was filled. And then one of uh, his enemies that had kind of snuck in, uh, someone who didn't like him, screamed right when everything was packed, fire. And there was chaos. And everyone flees. And uh, the balcony ends up falling. The rail gives way. Tons of people are trampled, and 28 are taken to the hospital as a result of this, and seven people die in this chaos. 22 leading this, and he had to be led to another room where he collapsed almost unconscious uh, from the stress. And this event would uh, be a traumatic event that would mark his entire life. He says, perhaps never a soul went so near the burning furnace of insanity and yet came away unharmed, uh, and he did not come away unharmed. 
all of these things. He, he is not the floating, you know, oppression doesn't mess with me because I'm so, he's a human. He feels all of this. In fact, one of his uh, buddies who was a, one of his early biographies says, I cannot but think from what I saw that his comparatively early death might have been in some measure due to the furnace uh, of mental suffering he endured on and after that fearful night. So that happens, and what would you think? If you're Spurgeon, what do you want to do? You want to go home to your family. Or you want those close to you would be comforted, uh, but he can't do that. His wife, Susanna, gave birth uh, the next day to their two sons, and after giving birth, developed a disease uh, that was somewhat unknown at the time, had an operation that was... Uh, very unsuccessful. She could never have children again, and she became an invalid for the rest of her life. She almost never heard him preach, and that was immediately after. So imagine a 22-year-old having this horrible event, can't be comforted by his family. That's, that's characteristic of the type of things he faced. Some others, the newspapers, not Christian newspapers, like the newspapers of London slandered him all the time. I won't read these quotes, but I have them there in your notes, I think, uh, of newspapers just ripping him to shreds. Other pastors all around him hated him. Some publicly said he wasn't a Christian. He's constantly being slandered. Uh, he had physical ailments. He had gout which he said was worse than a cobra bite. He had rheumatism and then uh, inflammation of the kidneys, Bright's disease. So he's constantly in pain. And then on top of this, he would say the worst of all of it was uh, relentless depression. Relentless depression that he, he didn't know the source of. He would be so depressed, he said he would just weep like a baby and have no idea why he wept. Uh, and then towards the end of his life, as if all these weren't bad enough, his denomination goes through a horrible theological controversy as liberal theology is sweeping through the Baptist Union, his denomination. Spurgeon is fighting against it. He's uh, urging the Baptist Union to, to adopt a statement of faith, rejecting it. They refuse. And so Spurgeon decides that he and his church will leave uh, the denomination. The denomination then publicly censures him and close friends publicly censure him. He said that fight almost killed him. So you see, I can't really think of a category where he wasn't incredibly oppressed. Yet in the midst of all of this, he continued to trust God and press on and continued to look to the Lord for his strength. There's a story of when he's in the midst of horrible depression where he's just like a kid going before his, his father. He, he prays. He's praying with a group of people, and he sends them all out as he's just floored with depression. And he says something to the fact that I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, if I, praying, if I had a son who was crying out to me in pain the way I'm crying out to you, I would do everything I could to wrap my arms around him and tell him it's okay. You are my father. I'm your child. Help. And that's one of the moments when the depression lifted and he called the people back in the room and said, God has, has helped me. And so just a man of prayer. Again, not a skilled, uh, not only a skilled preacher who's famous and has uh, risen to the upper echelons of, of Christian society, a man of prayer, a man who sought the face of God. He uh, trusted over all these horrible, horrible oppressions, trusted God's sovereignty. He says this, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand and that my trials were never measured out by him or sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and their quantity. Spurgeon, in the midst of all this, says, at the end of the day, there is an infinitely good, infinitely perfect, sovereign God in control of all of this. And that gives me comfort. 
What would be the most terrifying thing to Spurgeon to say, God's not in control of this. Somebody else is. He can't help me in the midst of all this. He doesn't have an infinitely wiser plan in the midst of all this. That's what got him through. Not by doing what so many in our day do, which is trying to distance God from things that seem bad, but rather by saying, I'm human, he's God, his ways are higher than my ways. It would be a terrifying thing to think God was not in control of all of this. He trusts God in the midst of all of these trials, and that's what gave him strength, and that's what gave him perseverance. That's the second thing that I think makes Spurgeon the man that he is. And then three, I didn't really know what to call this, an almost supernatural ability to serve the Lord. Uh, People in his day didn't know how he had enough time to do all the things that he did. Uh, Just, again, preaching every single week, writing sermons that are selling every single week. On top of that, 66 ministries, again, all of them almost completely funded by Spurgeon. Uh, Lord Shaftesbury, uh, that's what I'm going to name my next kid, uh, says this about him. The list of, oca- uh, list of oca- uh, occasions instituted by his genius and superintended by his care were more than enough to occupy the minds and hearts of 50 ordinary men. He had a pastor's college that uh, he started and it planted 18 churches in the first five years from its graduates. He had an orphanage. It was said that he knew all the kids in the orphanage by name. Uh, He had a ministry where they would make clothes for the poor in London. He started a Bible distribution ministry, 66, that he uh, oversaw. No one knew how, but he, he did. And he was said to, on top of all this, read about six dense theology books uh, a week that he would be able to remember. He also wrote around 140 books. Uh, so this just supernatural ability to just serve his Lord. And this lifestyle does kill him. He dies at 57, horrible health. Uh, that was not helped by not sleeping and doing all these different things. I don't agree. Uh, I don't think he was as wise uh, in, in going about this sort of incredible lifestyle without sleeping. But Spurgeon did, and we can agree to disagree on this. He says this, If by excessive labor we die before reaching the average age of man worn out in the master's service, then glory be to God. We shall have so much less of earth and so much more of heaven. So he knew, I might die early, but glory be to God, I'll have less of this earth and more of heaven. Uh, and I, when, you know, when, we, when we sit down and talk, I would correct, I, my, my only pushback would be, when you sleep, what do you, sleeping is an act of worship. Why? God doesn't sleep. Every time you go to bed at night, let your nighttime pillow talk prayer be, God, I praise you that you're God and I'm not, and I need this because my body will wear out and I will die early if I try to be God. I don't think that's what Spurgeon, I don't think Spurgeon was trying to be God. He knew what he was doing. Uh, But he did die uh, finally at 57. All those illnesses uh, killed him. He spent the last kind of third of his ministry, he couldn't preach. He was too sick to preach. He kept having to go to France, uh, to the south of France, and be refreshed by the French air, uh, which he liked more than London. Uh, So he, that's Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, this is, seemingly otherworldly man, uh, an incredible man of God who loved the Lord. All of his ministry comes from a heart that sought the face of God, not just skill. He's an incredibly skilled man, but a man who loved his Lord. So he's the first one, Charles Spurgeon. Let's look at the next, Herman Bovink. Herman Bovink, uh, who is considered now, there's a bit of irony about him, he's considered now the greatest a reformed theologian of the 20th century. And the irony of that is he's a Dutch theologian, was a Dutch theologian, and his writings have only been translated into English 
in the last 20 years. So the English-speaking world knows of him or knew of him but had never really read and studied his writings. And it's only until like 2000 and Reform Dogmatics, his massive work was translated in 2008. And so there's this growing love from the English-speaking world of this man. And it's instantly already kind of given the title of uh, the greatest Reformed theologian uh, of the last century. Have you ever thought about, so we're, we're Reformed here. Uh, and so have you ever thought about how, you know, we have Calvin. And then Calvin dies, and we get the Puritans that kind of follow, and then they die, and you get like Jonathan Edwards, and then there's us. I'm like, okay, it's like a 300-year jump. Who, who carries it on from Edwards? How do we get it? Do we just read Edwards? Most of us do. And Bavink and guys like B.B. Warfield uh, are, are kind of the ones that fill that gap, fill that question mark of how the Reformed faith continues on to us. His life uh, is, is certainly not uninteresting, but it's not why he's well-known. He was a professor of dogmatics and theology, ethics, things like that. Uh, but he's most well-known for his writings. And I'll just give you, he'll be, we'll spend the shortest amount of time on him. Uh, but I'll give you a sense of the man that he was. So he lives in the modern world. And what I mean by that isn't today. I mean post-enlightenment, rejection of all things supernatural, all things non-scientific, World. He lives in that world, and he sees it throwing out uh, anything that's, you know, not, again, scientific. He says this, in general, the current of our times is away from Christ and his cross. So we don't need that miracle stuff. We don't need that Jesus has God stuff. But the Bible's got some good morals and some good principles that could really be helpful in transforming our society and things like that. So that's kind of how the modern world is treating the scriptures and Bavink sees this, hates it, and views his kind of mission as articulating the Reformed Christian faith in the midst of this modern world. He is not a fundamentalist saying, well, the world's going bad. Let me escape to the desert. Okay, he's not keep the big bad world. He's saying, let me enter into this world that's rejecting the faith and let me articulate. He saw himself as a guide of articulating the Christian faith in the midst of this world. Again, I do not pray, Jesus says to the Father. Takes the time to clarify that you take them out of this world, but rather that you keep them from the evil one. The Christian impulse to escape is not what Jesus longs for us to do in John 17. I do not pray that you take them out of this world. And Bob Inc. is not saying, well, let's live not by lies and let's go you know, to a cave and just surround ourselves with this community saying, let's dive in and let the gospel do what it's done for thousands of years. So he's engaging with his day and fighting uh, against the challenges of the modern world with the gospel. So a couple examples with the scriptures. As the modern world is moving away from the scriptures, just looking for ways that can be helpful socially, Bavink fights against this and says the scriptures are rather the source. They are the foundation of all theology. We don't, we don't look anywhere else. The scriptures are the source of our theology. And similarly, as, as uh, theology in the modern world is just focusing on social change, he says theology is ultimately about God, about knowing God. I have a quote here from Bob Inc. Holy Scripture does not give us an abstract concept of deity, but rather wants to put us in contact, all of us personally, with a living and true God. I love that statement. If you think the Bible is this salvation textbook that is just boring and abstract, you have not understood the God who gave you the Scriptures. 
Scriptures do not give us an abstract concept of a cold, distant God. Rather, wants to put us in contact personally with a living and true God. Scripture breaks off our notions and concepts and leads us back to God himself. Hence, Scripture does not argue about God, but presents him to us and shows him in all the works of his hand. Lift up your eyes and behold, Scripture seems to say, who has made all these things. That's Boving's heart. Theology is not abstract being right. Theology, first and foremost, introduces you to a living and personal God. If that's not your view of the scriptures, of the Bible, of Christianity, of theology, you've misunderstood it. It's meant to introduce you to a living and personal God who came down, who is the one who gave you the scriptures in the first place. So his big work, you'll see it in Jeff's office, my office, Tim, any office you go in here, you'll see Reformed Dogmatics. That's his, his big uh, uh, systematic theology work where he, he talks through, he goes through subject by subject, gives biblical exegesis, uh, wrestles with how have people throughout church history uh, developed and thought about this subject, and then lastly, engages his day with it. How does this, how does the Trinity, how does Christology, how does salvation speak to our modern day. So that's him. His influence is only growing again. These aren't disembodied ideas. These are meant to bring us in contact with a personal God, to change our lives, and to change our age. Okay, Not running away, but engaging with his modern day. So Bob Inc., uh, his, his influence is only growing because I don't know Dutch. I know you guys know Dutch, but I haven't been able to read them until they translate into English. I don't have time to learn Dutch. You know, Jeff's dry cleaning. It's far across town. It takes a long time to pick up. Third guy, Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis. Uh, of anybody that we're going to look at today, he is uh, the weirdest. Uh, I wish we could spend, all these guys we could spend, you know, a whole lesson talking about. Uh, he, uh, I love C.S. Lewis, he is not a systematic theologian. He is not a pastor. He is not a, a Bible expositor. And if you treat him as such, he will mislead you. He is a professor of English literature and then kind of by happenstance becomes a very famous writer and a very famous uh, apologist. Uh, but let's we'll look at a brief sketch of his uh, kind of journey to becoming a Christian. Again, a very well-known one. He writes about this in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Uh, but if you can understand how the Lord saves C.S. Lewis, almost all of his writings will come to light. You'll, you'll see the heart behind uh, Narnia, and you'll see the heart behind the problem of pain and all these different things that he writes. So he is an atheist, an angry atheist, for the first 30 years of his life. Mocks Christianity, thinks it's a joke. He's not even a deist. He's an angry atheist. But his whole life, he can't shake these, these experiences of what he calls joy. And I'll define that in a second. It's, it's a bit different probably than what we think about joy. This, it's kind of a title that he gives this inconsolable longing. So he'll, he, he loved the Middle Ages. He loved reading the myths of the Middle Ages. So he would read, and through reading these, these stories, these myths, he would feel, as he described it, stabbed by this joy. So what, what is this joy that this atheist is being stabbed by? He says uh, this. Joy is it's the experience of an unsatisfied desire which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. It's the experience of an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. It's this aching, it's this yearning you feel that's not fulfilled, 
yet the yearning itself is more desirable than anything else. Let me give an example that I think maybe shed some light in on this. So uh, my wife, we have two crazy kids, uh, and so to give her a little break, uh, when I come home, I, we have a little runner stroller, two seats, and my daughter is now old enough to where she's not just like, you know, she's going to have neck problems as a result of running. So they put them both in there uh, and then run around our little neighborhood, Irwin Farms. It's got great sidewalks. And so run around uh, with them for a while uh, while Claudia doesn't have kids with her just so she can breathe. Uh, she's been nearing the brink of insanity all day. I'm like, here I come. Let me help. Uh, and so a couple months ago, I was running. And uh, one of my neighbors, I didn't know which one, was grilling. And so running, and all of a sudden the smell catches me, and it's almost like a hook in my nose. I mean, I stopped and stopped the kids, and I even said to them, like, hey, do you smell? You know, I talked to my little two-year-old, smell. And he would smile real big. We could smell it. I didn't know where it was coming from. And so in that moment, what am I experiencing? I'm experiencing something that's more delightful than anything else. Okay? I stopped everything to smell, but... In that moment, I'm still, in a sense, being kind of tortured. Why? I'm not tasting what that smell is. What is is my ultimate desire? Where is that coming from? I come home, you want to go out for steak, Claudia? I just have this, you know, I, I, I have to have this desire met. So in that moment, I'm loving the smell more than anything else, yet I'm not eating the ribs or whatever's actually being grilled. Do you grill ribs? Uh, I don't know anything about grilling. Uh, And so I think that's a bit what Lewis is describing here. He's being stabbed by this inconsolable longing that is more desirable than anything else, but at the same time, it's it's torturing him. So he, he describes it like this. An unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond my grasp Uh, beyond the grasp of my consciousness. The sweetest thing of all my life has been the longing to find the place, or find the place where all the beauty came from. So as an atheist, he's having these experiences of joy, this inconsolable longing. That's how God is kind of pursuing Lewis. And eventually, his rationale becomes this. This is a famous quote, but this is the context. This inconsolable longing is the context that this comes from. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He says that not as a Christian, as an atheist, as he's thinking through what is this that I keep tasting but not tasting? The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Enter, so that's a situation, enter his best friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings and other things. And Tolkien, who's a Catholic, committed Catholic, uh, was the first one to say to him, this joy, this inconsolable longing that you're feeling, when it's being awakened by myths or stories, myths not meaning, you know, we think of myth as like some lie someone's telling us, meaning story. When it's being awakened by these myths, it shows that behind those myths there is a true myth with a capital M. Behind all those stories that awakens this joy, there is a true joy that really Exists And the reason why this, this inconsolable longing is inconsolable is you're not, you're not tasting the real thing. It's meant to point you towards the true myth or the real joy. He says the, the real joy is the original shout, and the stories and the myths are only echoes. 
of that shout. So he's the first one to kind of evangelize in that way, to take Lewis's circumstances. It's a good way to do evangelism, by the way. Know somebody and then speak. How does the gospel speak into their life? And so he's the first one to say, this joy is meant to point you to the person of joy, the God of all joys. Behind these, these myths is the true myth. Uh, side note, that is exactly what Tolkien is doing in Lord of the Rings. Tolkien hates allegory. We always read, you know, Lord of the Rings, and we're like, is Gandalf Jesus? Tolkien hated all that stuff. He has a lot of, like a preface to the second edition of Lord of the Rings. He was like, I hate allegory. This is not an allegory. Very upset. But it's meant to be a myth, a story that points to the true myth. And so when you read and you see the friendship of Sam Gamgee or you see the leadership of Aragorn or you see the, the care of Gandalf and you have that longing, if you have that longing like Lewis, of I want someone to care for me like that. I want someone to watch over me like that. I want to follow a leader like that. I want a friend like that. Tolkien would say there is such a friend who's better. There is such a leader who's better. There is such a comforter who's better. Let this myth lead you to the true myth. That's Tolkien's strategy, and that's how he evangelizes to Lewis. And as a result, Lewis becomes a theist, and then a couple months later becomes a Christian. And all of a sudden, this longing for joy has led him to capital J, the person of joy himself. He writes this after becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have never found the echo of a tune we have never heard, the news from a country we have not yet visited. And so once Lewis finds Jesus, the God of all joys, he enters into this country that he had not yet visited. He grabs a hold of it, and it, he gives his life to it. It, it infects everything he writes. And he never, uh, he, he, he found the God that he was longing after. He never describes it as an inconsolable Longing. He had found the true story that all the other stories pointed to. So that's, that's, that's the heart that goes behind most of his writings. Let's look at uh, kind of some of his works. We don't have time to go through all of them. Uh, but Lewis's kind of philosophy of what he, how he viewed himself in writing these different Christian works was he was focused on mere Christianity. That's the title of one of his books, but that was his philosophy. I'm focused on m- mere Christianity, he says, uh, he, he defined that as uh, uh, the Christian religion as understood everywhere by everyone. He says, I have, be- uh, I have believed myself to be restating ancient and orthodox doctrine that I, uh, I have tried to assume nothing that is not professed by all baptized believers and communicating Christians. And we'll talk about the problems with that in just a second. But as a result of that, Lewis is influence has spread across every possible Christian denomination. I have my, my closest friend, I have friends who are as kind of Pentecostal as you can get, who love and have consumed everything Lewis has written. And my best friend, besides Claudia, is a Catholic priest, and there's no one who's influenced his life more than C.S. Lewis. How is that possible? 
How can one man, Bob Inc. doesn't do that. Bob Inc., no Catholics are reading Bob Inc. And no Pentecostals are reading Bob Inc. Reformed guys read Bob Inc. How can Lewis reach so many? How can guys like John Piper and Tim Keller, who are Reformed, say he's one of the biggest influences on their life? It's because kind of of this broad focus. He doesn't, he doesn't put barriers around himself. Now, why is that an issue? What are the negatives of that? Everything within the Christian church, other than the Trinity, uh, has been debated. We don't have, there's always seminary, fellow seminary students that were like, denominations are dumb. I'm going to, you know, stop them. And we would have conversations like, okay, uh, my wife and I have a baby and we're in your church. Do we baptize them or not? Because I think not a good thing and sinful. You think good thing and not sinful. And so what do we do? Because one of us is going to send as a result of this, boom, denominations, okay? And so they just hadn't thought about it. Uh, and so everything had been debated, or everything has been debated within the church. So Lewis, when you try to not say things, you end up saying things. He was not reformed. He wasn't really an evangelical. Uh, he didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He believed people could be saved by imperfect representations of Jesus from other religions. Something called inclusivism. If you've read The Last Battle, the last uh, book in the Narnia series, you see that uh, come out. I think he has an unbiblical view of free will. And what perhaps is the most troubling, his, his uh, greatest mentor is not a Christian. George MacDonald, who's Pelagian, uh, heretical in many ways, hates the God of Jonathan Edwards, uh, meaning God of the Bible. Uh, and Lewis says, uh, no one, uh, there's not a page I've written that George MacDonald has not influenced. Okay, so there's, there, there's some negatives to this pursuit of mere Christianity and some serious errors that he makes. Things that I think are essential to the gospel that he either skips over or communicates very poorly. And so there are negatives in this pursuit. I don't think it's a good pursuit. I don't think, I think this is pursuing unity and not getting real unity. You can't have unity apart from the truth. But even with all these errors, what he did focus on was so profound and deep that he has an incalculable influence on the church. He, he, once he breaks into this world of true joy, it infects everything he wrote. And in fact, it made all of the things in life fall into place. So he's not reformed, but he makes this very reformed statement that I have there in your notes. Uh, the Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify. The, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. If you've ever wondered where John Piper gets his Christian hedonism, uh, you know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him right here. Piper and, uh, or sorry, Lewis and Edwards. So this, this joy that he had been searching for, he realized is the actual purpose of Christianity. Enjoying God forever is how we glorify him. So that, that infects all of his writings. Uh, his, his, the way he writes stories is very similar to Tolkien. Uh, the, the way Tolkien evangelized him actually marks Narnia. Lewis would not say Narnia is a, an allegory, but rather a, a myth meant to draw you into the true myth. Uh, one of his uh, good friends says this about, especially Aslan, the lion of Narnia, says this. The figure Aslan tells us, uh, tells us more of how Lewis understood the nature of God than anything else that he wrote. It has all the hidden power and majesty and awesomeness which Lewis associated with God. 
but also the glory and the tenderness and even the humor which he believed belonged to him so that, a ch- uh, so that children could run up to him and throw their arms around him and kiss him. And one of his, uh, Lewis's closest friends, George Sayer, who wrote the best biography on Lewis, uh, in my opinion, called Jack, tells a story in that about his stepdaughter uh, who read the Narnia books, and when she gets to the end, she wept. And she said, I don't want to live in this world anymore. I want to go to Narnia and live with Aslan. And Sayer simply says to her, sweetheart, one day you will. You won't enter through a wardrobe and meet the actual lion, Aslan, but one day you will enter another world and meet the true lion of Judah and you will throw his arm, your arms around him and you will live with him for all of eternity. You see that. It's meant to draw you in to the true myth. Things like the great divorce uh, and screw tape letters, again, aren't meant to be literal you know, depictions of hell and heaven and demons and things like that, but meant to draw you in. Uh, and then uh, alongside this with his stories, we'll move a little bit quicker, alongside this with his stories, he also was an apologist. He writes uh, several works, uh, let's see, Problem of Pain, Miracles, Abolition of Man, things like that, fighting against the modern world that was doing away with truth, kind of the preludes of postmodernism, to say that, you know, really when we see something beautiful, it's just something inside us that tells us this is desirable. That's actually what he writes about in The Abolition of Man. And when we see a waterfall and say, that's incredible, that's really just things firing off inside you. It's not objectively beautiful, that's just how you feel. And so he hates this, he writes against it, because he knew if truth goes out the window, then the entire world of joy, belief in capital J, the person of joy himself, the God of all joys, goes with it. So he defends truth because he thinks, if truth goes, everything I love about this glorious God of all longings goes with it. If it's all trivialized and relativized and just a matter of my personal subjective Preference. So he also is an apologist, writes defending uh, the faith, and then he dies November 22nd, 1963, and his death went tragically underreported. Does anybody know why? JFK, yes. He died the same day uh, JFK was assassinated, and so his, his death did not even show up in the newspapers, uh, but I'm sure the next week they talked about it. Uh, so he, he, he enters into this, this glorious world of knowing the God of all joy. And I have this famous quote again uh, that ends, uh, to, to end our talk on Lewis, that gives us just a glimpse of this man. If we consider the unblemishing promises and rewards and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem, our, our, seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, there it is, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by, uh, by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Lewis, why is Lewis so impactful? He's a man when he finally tasted the holiday at the sea, it infected everything. And he wanted his works to be a giant pointer in the same way that joy pointed him to the person of joy, he wanted to point to the person of joy. Lastly, Billy Graham. I always do this. We're not going to have time for questions. I'm so sorry. You know, blame Lewis. If they were more boring, this would go quicker. You can just email me your questions. Don't text them in. Billy Graham, last guy. I love Billy Graham. Uh, he's from Charlotte, which is where my wife and I went to seminary. His library, uh, which is a museum, but they called it a library, because Billy thought a museum would be, you know, 
too prideful. And so they were like, cool, we'll call it a library and make it a museum. Uh, his library is there, and so anytime anyone would visit us, it was like a free thing to go do. So I did that a billion times. Uh, but I love him. He, he wouldn't consider himself reformed, uh, but possibly with the exception of John Paul, Pope John Paul II, he is the most well-known person in the 20th century. Uh, there's, yeah, he, he became America's pastor. Uh, Mark Knoll says, uh, an evangelical is anyone who likes Billy Graham. So he becomes this incredible figure. He had this normal childhood, uh, and he became famous. He worked for Youth for Christ, which was a, a parachurch organization. He was their first full-time evangelist. And what set him apart was he went to a revival in L.A., was preaching a revival in L.A., which all of them had been really unsuccessful. And then a, a media mogul named William Hurst, randomly, we still don't know why, most biographers don't know why, told his news reporters two words, Puff Graham, meaning Talk about this, this revival that's happening, and news begins to spread. Thousands begin to go and hear him, uh, and after that, after L.A. in 1949, he was in a class by himself for like the next six decades. So he skyrockets, and in a sense, his ministry had perfect timing with kind of the media boom of uh, the 1900s. He was all over radio, television, papers, journals, magazines, even in movies. He was handsome, which helped, you know, when you're hearing about your sin— and how Jesus saves you. It's nice to have a good face to look at. Uh, and so he, he became kind of this Christian celebrity. Uh, presidents began uh, to be friends with him. Truman did not like him. But everybody else after that uh, began to kind of, he was, he was this famous guy. So they'd have him in the White House. And then they realized, first of all, their presidency's friendship with him gave Billy credibility in the early years. And then later on, presidents wanted Billy to come to the White House. They sought after his friendship because it gave them credibility, which shows you how high his... Uh, his, his status had rise. He was very close friends with uh, Johnson, Nixon, Reagan, George Bush, and Bill Clinton. He actually went skinny dipping with LBJ. That's fun stuff. He was uh, the closest, the closest friendship was with uh, Lyndon Johnson, which is ironic because he's not known for morals. But uh, he, he knew technically all 13 sitting presidents uh, during his lifetime. He met Trump before he was uh, president, so technically knew them all. Uh, and uh, again, they, his friendship, they sought, JFK uh, arranged for a photo op with him just so they could, that could be posted everywhere where it looked like he was friends with Billy. And that shows you how high Billy's status had, written, uh, had risen. And by the end of his life, he, or pretty early on, he was just seen as America's pastor. Who did uh, George W. Bush call on after 9-11 to preach to the whole nation? Billy. Even after his, he was semi-retired. Uh, in fact, David Frost, the TV host, says, Graham is the nearest thing that America has to an established church. Okay, so that's Billy. Uh, and the center of his ministry was what he called crusades. A little tone deaf if you wanted to reach uh, Muslims. But crusades. He would go. Uh, he did 417 of these in his lifetime in 185 countries from 1947 to 2005. The longest one was 16 weeks in New York City. The largest one was in South Korea. 1.1 million people attended one of his uh, crusades. So he would go and they would set up and they would preach. And one of the things that I love about Billy is he was not in it for his own fame. He would on purpose, he didn't just show up, preach, people walk the aisle and then leave like a traveling circus. He wouldn't accept an invitation to a town uh, unless the majority of the local churches there uh, agreed. And then he would work with them and set up counselors to where everyone that would come forward would get plugged into a normal church, or, or normal church, local church, so that they could be discipled. 
He cared about discipleship. Uh, he knew his role was an evangelist. He did not like when everyone made him their teacher. He would over and over and over again say, I'm an evangelist for deep discipleship. There's other people who spend more time studying and things like that. Go to them for that. I'm an evangelist. And so uh, that was kind of his heart behind the Crusades. His, his message had four elements. Uh, focus on the cross. Focus on a decision for Christ. A decision for Christ. Everything kind of... Uh, the whole crusade's funneled down to a point where he would say, right now, make a decision for Jesus Christ. Choose to leave him or choose to, to come to him. And he thought the center of this was the rebirth, not just lip service, but actual transformation of a heart. And it would lead to uh, the Billy Graham altar call. When you hear the song, Just As I Am, typically everyone thinks of a, of a Billy Graham service because that would play every time as people would come forward. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. You can come right now, he would say, because it's not up to you, it's up to him. His blood is shed for you, so you come and we will pray. He, he knew that could be ritualistic, but for him, the, the possibility of the altar call becoming ritualistic was far outweighed by the actual uh, reality that someone might uh, truly be transformed. And it was different than a, the kind of Second Great Awakening Pentecostal altar calls. He viewed it as some, the Spirit has already done something in their heart. This is just an external sign. This, the, nothing in the actual walking the aisle does anything to you. The Spirit's already done the work. This is just stepping out. And then I have a long quote there that I won't read for the sake of time, but Graham's greatest gift. How could someone from the 40s stay relevant until 2005 when he retired? You ever thought about that? Like even actors who were really funny in the 90s were like, boring, humor's not funny anymore, right? Jim Carrey, you know, no thank you anymore. Like, it's kind of what we do. That's why he hasn't made a movie in a long time. But Billy stays relevant for forever. And his greatest gift was simply taking the message of the gospel and perfectly, he, he had a, just a razor sharp understanding of his day. And he would communicate in the, uh, the gospel in a way that just spoke st uh, strictly to people, not by watering it down, but actually understanding the world that he lived in. And then he himself continued, he, he continued to kind of, change. He adapted to the times. He had just this incredible gift of adapting to the times. That, that long quote that I have there, I won't read, but you can read it later. He, he, in, the, in the 50s, what's the whole world thinking about? Cold War, communism. It's back when communism was, wasn't as popular as today. Uh, and so he, uh, he, he reads, that's a letter. He's got a letter from a communist uh, who's breaking off his engagement with his fiance. And so he takes it and says, I've got this letter from a guy who became a communist. Boo. Uh, and here's a letter of him talking about how much he loves communism, and he's breaking off his engagement with his fiance. He reads the thing, and it's this incredible commitment to world communism. It ends with the guy saying, I can't carry on a, a friendship or a love affair or anything without communism at the center. And then he turns to his people and, say, and says, I want to ask you, do you have that much commitment to Jesus Christ? Because Christ demands no less. Right? So take something everyone, you know, is, is right in front of their eyes and spins it so that the gospel can speak directly to their hearts. That was an incredible gift that he had. He died. He almost made it to 100. Died just a couple years ago, 2018, at 99. Uh, and he was the fourth civilian ever to be honored uh, to, to lie in a state of honor in the rotunda in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, his last interview... This is, again, one of the reasons why I love this man. His last interview, this is a man who had literally been seen and heard more than any other human being ever. Seen and heard more than anybody else. In his last interview, he was asked, would you do anything differently? You've had this unbelievable career, and without missing a beat, he says, I would pray more and I would study more. 
and I would travel way less and I would speak way less. And, everyone, and the person interviewing says, really? And he said, yes, I would spend more time praying, telling God how much I love him. I would spend more time in study. I traveled way too much. So again, you, he was not allured by this fame. Instantly, I would pray more, I would know my God more, and I would study more. So that's, that's Billy Graham. He, he kind of created a third way of evangelicalism, incredibly influential. As the church was splitting fundamentalist and liberal, Billy Graham kind of paves the way for evangelicalism to go through this, this idea of biblical centrality, this focus on the cross as, as the center of our faith, this evangelical way he paved so that's, that's, that's Billy. Billy's great. I, I wouldn't suggest a whole lot of his books, not because they're heretical or anything. He just didn't write a lot of them. Oh, my gosh, I've let a secret be known. He had a ghostwriter. Uh, but uh, so listen to a lot of his sermons. His sermons were great. Uh, but these are just four men. Again, I could have picked from 100 others. But why do we do this? This is just to give you a little taste of why church history is just a, a, a treasure chest for you to keep the clean sea breeze blowing through your minds and not to be uh, blinded by our day. Hang out with Augustine. Don't be satisfied just with uh, one hour-long teaching on Augustine from Zach. Go read Augustine. Read C.S. Lewis. Let him show you this world of joy. Read Spurgeon. Let him connect you to a sovereign God who's in control of everything and be strengthened by the men and women of church history. Let me pray for us, and we will dismiss. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you that uh, we read history not as a profession or anything like that. It's, it's not a, uh, an, another world or, or just our ancestors. It's the foundation that we're standing upon. And so I pray that we wouldn't uh, simply read and critique and, you know, like certain things and move on, but rather we would learn from. And our hearts would be transformed as a result of Spurgeon and Lewis and Augustine and Athanasius and Aquinas and all these men who long for your kingdom to be made known and your gospel to transform hearts and your son to be exalted and honored and glorified. We have that same longing. And so I pray that you would, uh, in the same way we look to them, that they would just point right back to you and that we would glorify you and love you more and you would have more of us as a result. We pray in the name of your holy son. Amen.